Chains by Laurie Halsey Anderson Chapter 21 Wednesday, July 10th, 1776 This is, um, at the top is primary evidence. It's an advertisement in the New York Gazette and Weekly Mercury newspaper. Quote, To be sold at the office of William Tung, broker at the house of the late Mr. Waldron, near the exchange, lower end of Broad Street, the following goods and merchandise, viz. One Negro wench, 22 years old, has had smallpox, is a useful domestic, price 80 pounds. One Negro boy, 16 years old, price 90 pounds. One Negro wench, 30 years old, with or without her son, 5 years old, price 60 or 80 pounds. Advertisement in the New York Gazette. Whew. So this is chapter 21. In my dream, I stood on a sandy beach, my back to the sea, the moon over my left shoulder. An enormous map was unrolled at my feet. The roads on it were marked with velvet black ink, rivers a purely blue, mountains a speckled green. It was a map of a country I had never before seen. Just as I opened my mouth to call for Ruth, who always tagged along in my dreams, a thick mist blew over the beach. The roads on the map twined and twisted round each other, hesitating, then they rose up off the paper, no longer roads, but thick eels with amber eyes. They crawled out of the map, and I feared they would bite me. They pounded me a moment, then slithered down the beach and into the water. I awoke with a start and flung aside the blanket, looking for the eels. There were none there, nor in the potato bin. Ruth wasn't there, neither, and her side of our pallet was cold. She was gone to the privy, no doubt. I needed to visit the same place. The sun was already in the trees when I stepped outside. How had I slept so late? Ruth, I called, walking toward the little building, my nose wrinkled. The Lockdowns would soon need to dig a new privy hole. Ruth? I knocked on the door, and it swung open. The seat was empty, with a few flies buzzing in the stench. Two blue jays in the sycamore tree called loudly. There was the distant sound of officers shouting orders on Broadway and the clatter of cartwheels, but no Ruth. I made quick work of looking in the yard. The back entry to the stables was locked. She would not have gone out that way. The gate to the street was closed, too, and the latch too high for Ruth to reach. Had Madame already dressed her, taken her on a call? A thought slid through me, quick and slimy as a cold eel. I ran for the kitchen door. Becky? Becky! She came out of the pantry as I flew through the door. Where's Ruth? Oh, Becky looked down at the worn tips of her shoes, then turned away from me. Her eyes were puddled up and red-rimmed. I can't find her, I said. She was gone when I woke. Have you seen her? Becky took the jar of flour down from the shelf. You know where she is, don't you? She removed the lid and stuck the scoop into the flower. Tell me! Becky shook her head from side to side. I should have started this bread earlier, she said, pouring the flour into the bowl. The wet air will ruin the loaves. That's my concern. I, I should have stayed and baked in the cool of the night. She dabbed her eyes on her sleeve and measured out another scoop of flour. But Madam sent me home 
said she wanted a quiet house last night, no baking. She looked at me over her shoulder. The eel squeezed out of all my air. No, I said. I wouldn't have gone if I'd known. No, no, no. I backed away, shaking my head. She didn't. She, she wouldn't. No, Isabel, don't. Becky followed me down the hall, trying to control her voice. It won't change anything. What's done is done. Rose! I screamed up the staircase. Stop, Isabel! Becky grabbed my arm and pulled me backward, clamping a flower-covered hand over my mouth. You can't storm around here like a banshee. Madam will beat you bloody, me too. I pushed her hand away and wiped off the flower. Where is she? What did they do to her? She's gone, Becky said. Gone, I repeated. Gone where? Becky studied her shoes again. Sold. I stopped hearing right. No more birds or buzzing flies or grandfather clock marking time. Sold? I repeated. No, she's not. They didn't. Becky's eyes filled again. Yes, she said quietly. She did. I paced the hall. No, I slept too heavy last night. Didn't notice when she woke. She wandered outside. We need to find her. She could be lost, could have taken ill and fallen. Becky watched me go to and fro. The sweet milk madam made up. I figure it contained a sleeping potion. Knocked you out so cold so they could spirit her away. I am dreadful, powerful sorry, but they sold her away from you. It made no sense. I would have known. I would have woken up, fought them off, killed whoever tried to take her from me. I took care of Ruth. I promised Mama I would always would. Becky's face shrank down to the size of a coin. It sounded like she spoke through a long wooden pipe. Madam was returning to the carriage when I arrived this morn, she said. Told me not to worry about the milk spoiling no more. That Ruth was headed to Nevis, sold to a physician's family. I shook my head, trying to clear my brain pan. Where's Nevis? How do I get there? Becky's face grew larger. You need to sit down. I'll get a cloth for your head. This has been right shock to you. Where's Nevis? My voice echoed off the walls. West Indies, Becky muttered. The islands? All of Mama's terrible stories of slave life in the islands flooded back. Ruth can't cut cane. She'll die. She'll die in a day. My feet started for the front door. Wait, Becky grabbed me by the arm to prevent me from running off. I questioned Madam about that very fact, questioned her right close, I did. Not to cut cane, she said, but to a housemaid in a fine house, a physician's house, so they'll care for her should she fall. She's lying, I said. She's a spiteful, hateful liar. A door opened on the second floor. Becky, Madam asked, has someone come to call? No, ma'am, Becky said in a false high voice. Madam came down the stairs, one hand on the railing, the other holding a sheet of paper, half covered with writing. The paintings of her dead ancestors on the wall watched her. I do not appreciate interruptions when I am communicating with my husband, she said. What is the matter here? Nothing, ma'am, Becky smuttered, stuttered. I was giving the girl her directions for the morning. 
Madame looked down without seeing me. She looked at my face, my kerchief, my shift neatly tucked into my shirt, looked at my shoes pinching my feet, looked at my hands that were stronger than hers. She did not look into my eyes, did not see the lion inside. She did not see the me of me, the Isabel. I saw her. I saw all the way down to her withered soul. I walked up two steps. Did you sell Ruth? You will not address me in that insolent manner. Her voice shook a little. Becky wrung her hands. Come, Isabel, you need to peel the potatoes. Would Madame like some tea or coffee? I took another step up. Answer me, you miserable cow. Did you sell my sister? Madame backed up a step. Her letter fluttered to the bottom of the stairs. Her ancestors hung silent. Stay away from me, she said. Get back to the kitchen. She is five years old. I rose another step. She is a baby, and you sold her away from me. She swallowed hard. Her hands quivered. I wanted to grab her by the hair and throw her down the stairs, throw her out a window, beat her face with my fists. I wanted her blood to splash the painting, soak the wall and the wooden stairs. Isabel, Becky warned. The sunlight coming through the window was rosy red. I took the next step. I was almost close enough to reach her. Isabel, Becky tried again. One more step, and I can have you hung, Madame whispered. I held my breath. There was a click of metal on metal. Becky had opened the front door wide. A hot wind from the street rose up the stairs, fluttering our skirts and causing me to turn. Madame grabbed a painting from the wall and threw it down on my head. I raised my arm too late and the frame crashed into me. The blow made me adulpated and weakened my knees. Madame ran upstairs screaming like a house afire. Becky dragged me down the steps and shoved me toward the open door. Run! she screamed. I ran out the front door for the first time. People walking under the shade of the sycamores across the street paused at the sight of a slave running away from a mansion where a woman was screaming. A man called after me. You there, girl! I ran straight down wall. Didn't worry about escaping notice of soldiers or strangers. Just flew over the cobblestones as fast as I could. The red fog slowly rolled out of my mind. There were more shouts behind me and people turning to stare at the cause of the commotion. I didn't dare take the time to turn around. Past City Hall, cross Broadway, I leapt over the remains of a sentry fire, bumped into a gray-bearded soldier wearing a homespun shirt, and startled a man carrying two live hens by the feet. One of the hens broke free in the explosion of feathers. The man shook his fist and called out for someone to stop me. I ducked down one street after another, trying to find a way to the river, but the army had eradicated barracks at the ends of most of the roads to keep out of the British. Keep out the British. I was penned in. The shouts behind me grew louder and closer. I darted down an alley, turned blindly toward the right, and ran smack into the barrel chest of a giant. Whoa there, young filly, a deep voice boomed. Don't want to go swimming in the river, do you? I had run straight into a blacksmith. Please, sir, I said. His enormous hands released me and looked over my shoulder. 
Looking to get away from someone, I suspect, the blacksmith said. Behind him billowed the coal smoke from the forge. The air was filled with the hot tang of metal and sweat. You're hurt, child, the blacksmith said, in need of some help. I wanted to spill out my story and to trust he could advise me, but he was a stranger. They were all strangers, and Ruth was gone, and there was blood on my forehead from the painting Madame threw at me, and she was going to see me hung, and I'd never be able to rescue Ruth, and she would be all alone, and... Tell them I went north, I gasped as I picked up my skirts and darted around the forge to the south. The blacksmith called after me, but his words were lost in the din of the soldiers and the sailors who cluttered my path. The wind of the river cooled my face and helped my decision. I would turn myself over to the rebels. I had helped them fair and square. Now it was their turn. We were all fighting for liberty. Ad Astra, I shouted. The words were not as magic as I had hoped, but the door eventually opened. Colonel Regan was sitting in a chair, a white cloth around his neck, his face covered with foamy soap and his eyes closed. Behind him stood a barber, a slave, I assumed because of his African skin with grizzled hair and an apron. On the table beside him stood a bowl of steaming water, a leather strup for blades, and a cup of leather with a brush in it. He turned the colonel's chin with one finger, then delicately shaved away a stripe of soap with a razor. "'By your leave, sir,' said the sentry. "'I am busy,' the colonel said, without opening his eyes. "'The girl knew the password, insisted on seeing you,' the sentry continued. The barber scraped off another stripe of soap and whiskers. "'Take her to Jameson,' the colonel said. "'No.' "'No,' I said." The barber froze in mid-shave, and the colonel opened his eyes. "'Please, sir, you must help me,' I said quickly. "'As I once helped you, she sold my sister. "'Please, sir, I'll do anything. Just find Ruth. She's so small, and—' The door behind us opened. Two more sentries filed in, followed by Madame Lockton, breathing hard, and a tall gentleman I'd seen, not bo seen before. My sentry waved— the, my sentry waved me farther into the room so that the newcomers might all fit. I worked my way toward an open window. "'What is the meaning of this?' the colonel asked warily. Madame's voice cracked across the room. "'Are you the man in charge?' The colonel sighed deeply, waved off the barber, and stood up, his face still half-covered with soap. "'Colonel Thomas Regan, at your service, ma'am,' he bowed stiffly from the waist. "'How can I be of service?' "'You have stolen my property,' Madame announced. "'We have several clerks assigned to record civil concerns. "'My sergeant will show you. "'I will not speak with subordinates or grubby clerks. "'That chit of a girl belongs to me, Colonel. "'She has committed terrible crimes and must be punished. "'I demand you return her to me.' "'The barber rinsed the razor in the water bowl. "'Regan looked from Madame to me and back again. "'What did she do?' She abused me most violently, sir. The colonel put out his hand, and the barber placed a clean towel in it. Yet yeah, it is the girl with the bloody blood on her face, the colonel said, wiping away the soap from his chin and cheeks. Madame's eyes narrowed. Give her to me. The sentries shifted their boots on the floor. One cleared his throat. The gentleman who accompanied Madame stepped forward. 
The law is quite clear on this matter, sir. None of us want to live in a world where servants rule their masters. Both the Parliament and the Congress give Madame Lockton rule over her slave. A flock of crows swoop past the window. A three-masted ship, sails unfurled, pushed down the river. Ruth could be on it, or she was already at sea, in a dark hold with no candles. Who would feed her? Who would hold her when she shook? The girl says you've sold her sister, Colonel Regan said. Do you mean to purchase Sal for the army? Madam asked. I'm sure she'd make a passing fine washwoman. I shall expect full payment in cash. He handed the towel back to the barber. A washwoman is the one thing I don't need right now. If you had any manservants capable of ditch dinging, I'd take you up on the offer, but he paused and shook his head. I looked out the window again. One crow had come back. It landed on a carcass near the water's edge. A dead dog or a rat. The crow pecked at the meat of the thing, snatched a pink strip in its beak, and tugged until the piece broke away. He beat its his wings once, twice, and flew up in the air high enough to catch a breeze that rode him over the water. Another man had entered the room. The night of my first visit to the fort, he had worn his uniform coat over his nightshirt. Now his coat was properly buttoned and his breeches tucked into his boots. Thomas, we cannot interfere, he said. This girl is not our concern and you are late. We dare not keep him waiting. I looked out the window at the carcass. Please, sir, I said in a quiet voice. Let me stay. Colonel Regan fastened his collar without looking at me. The law binds my hands and my actions. You must return with your mistress, he said, concentrating on his task. Even during time of war, we must follow the rules of propriety and civilization. With that, the matter was concluded. Madame turned to thank the man who aided her. The sentry slipped into the hall. Colonel Regan picked up his hat from the table and set it on his head. As I stepped toward the window, the barber studied me close. He shook his head once from side to side, just as Ginny had back in Rhode Island one hundred years ago. Bad advice on both occasions. I bolted for the open window. I almost made it. That's the end of chapter 21.